Welcome to Design Your Life, the podcast where we explore the central role design plays in our everyday lives and how, if harnessed correctly, has the power to positively transform the way that we live, design better businesses and sustainable solutions for the planet. We speak to creative entrepreneurs around the world about how they inspire their ideas to life and how they make it all work and the role design plays in their lives. I'm your host, founder of Frost Collective and author of Design Your Life, Vince Frost. Welcome to today's episode of Design Your Life. Today I catch up with Paul Monaghan, one of the UK's most influential architects and co-founder of the critically acclaimed architectural practice, Alfred Hall Monaghan Morris, also known as AHMM. Tune in as we chat about his architectural philosophy and how he designed the business to the scale it is today and what it feels like to be the first city region design champion of his home city, Liverpool. Uh, hey, Paul, welcome to Design Your Life. How are you doing? Great, thanks. Great. It's good weather here today, so um, yeah, we're going to make the most of it. I heard it's been pretty crap since we left. Uh, yesterday was terrible, but, you know, we've had Wimbledon with sunshine, so it's been oh. a good... Yeah, but we had we had some bad weather, but some um, there was some cricket team that came over from your place and um, <laughs> ro- ro- robbed, us, robbed us of the ashes just by yes. using our weather. Yes. Well, it, yeah, that was a good outcome and still continuing. Right? <laughs> um, we met last month in London uh, and we were introduced by the brilliant Carolyn Larkin, who's a, a good friend, both mutual friend, um, yeah. founder of Carol Communications, and we're working closely with her in London. I've known her for 30 years. I don't know if you have too. Yeah, yeah, I have since we set up, yeah. Yeah, wow. I spoke to her this morning and she sends her love to you as well. So you're the co-founder of Alfred Hall Monaghan Morris, also known as AHMM, and you built this business. I'm astounded by this business because you're, I think, 500 people. In 35 years, you've gone from uh, four partners and created such an incredible organization of the scale that you are at now across the UK and the US. Um, Was that the plan when you started? Um, Not really. We were only 27 when we started in 1989. 27 years old, not people, right? 27 years old, just four of us in a studio in the West End. And, um, yeah, I think about a month after starting, the um, Chancellor of the Exchequer made quite big changes to mortgages, and we went into, like, a six-year recession. So it was quite a hard start, really. Oh, yeah. And quite painful. Um, But, no, I I think our ambition at the beginning was just we had a friendship. We loved architecture, all types of architecture, Mm-hmm. And we had ambition. We were young and ambitious, and we just sort of set up slightly naively, really, because if we'd really thought about it and analysed it, um, it wasn't a smart time to do it. But but we had energy, oh. and I suppose it was only after about ten years we started to think about what sort of practice we could be. But we we've we've never really thought about the size of the practice. We've always thought about what projects we get. So if we grow, it's because it's for the right projects, but we never try and grow. I think if yeah. you follow growing, you get yourself into trouble. So it's always been project-based, and it just so happens in the last 10 years we've got bigger and bigger projects, so you grow a little bit quicker. Yeah. Well, and all four, four partners are working equally in the business? 
Yes, Simon and I, Simon Alford and myself, we run two design studios, which are very complimentary. Mm -hmm. Peter's the managing director and deals with the business. And Jonathan deals with fees, appointments, legal sides. Um, and so the four of us, all, all, we're all architects, but and we all look at the work, but we all have specific roles and wow. have done for the last 30 years, yeah. It's really interesting when that works, isn't it? Because a lot of a lot of people come together and start organizations that just don't work and, and that don't have that kind of, you have that breadth of capability that's enabled it to go from strength to strength. Yeah, this, I think we're quite lucky. It's sort of serendipity throws mm. you together. I mean, I've known Simon since I was 18 when I went to university, and I'm 61 wow. now. Wow. Pete and John have known each other since they're 18, and we met. We all met when we were 21. So we've been oh, together 40, 40 years. We've had our arguments, but you know what? We really respect each other, and we really get on. And I do think that having seen lots of other businesses with different directors crash because of relationships, yeah. we've we've always somehow got through difficult times together. And um, I think as we got older, we've we've you know. The relationships got even stronger. If I'm honest, yeah, that's incredible. Just, I guess, it's mutual respect by working together all those years. I mean, how, how did you start out? Did you realize from an early age you wanted to be an architect? Um, my dad was a draftsman. I'm from Liverpool. Um, mm -hmm. My dad worked for English Electric, or like a um, you know, big state electric company, and, and so there were loads of set squares and drawing equipment in the living room. Um, and I was good at art at school. Um, and I, I, when I was 14, went to, a, you know, the careers evening on architecture. And I realized you could make money by drawing. <clears throat> and I liked the idea of that. So I sort mm. of went into university to do architecture. I didn't really do much before. didn't really know anything about it until the first day I arrived at architecture school. You know, didn't know who Le Corbusier was, didn't know anything. Wow. And sort of realized I wasn't bad at it quite quickly, but also, more importantly, I really enjoyed it and um, sort of took it from there, really. And um, I went to Sheffield University. Uh, that's where I met Simon. Mm -hmm. And then we both came to London for our, for our first job and then went to the Bartlett, which is UCL, for our final two years where um, we met Pete and John. And that's how it all all began really and, and at that point the four of us did a joint project in diploma the final year uh, it's called the fifth man which is uh, now now actually weirdly our publishing company where we we do books and things mm. oh, and cool. called it after our diploma project and then um, when we finished we decided to go for group interviews we didn't go for interviews for jobs by ourselves we said you <laughs> can in interview all four or none and we had about wow. five offers. It was boom time. It was 1986. It was a real boom term. Yeah. And we ended up in a firm called Building Design Partnership, BDP, who I think might mm -hmm. be in Australia too. Mm. And they were the biggest firm in England. And we worked there for three years and then one day decided to set up. So that's how it all sort of began in a fast way. Ah, and that's where Carolyn was working too, right? No, she, she was working. She was there in the early days. Maybe she was a bit. Yeah, she was at BDP, but she was also at Rock Townsend. Yeah, so that's where I. Mm. But I didn't come across Carolyn until we'd set up and we started doing exhibitions at the RBA. Okay. 
Yeah, you're right in terms of saying like at 27, you're kind of incredibly naive. Um, and it's, and it's, I, when I started my business, I think I was um, just, just a little bit older than that. And, you know, just starting out thinking, I'm just going to have a go. And it's yeah. incredible. Um, I wish that I had found uh, three other guys to work with from the outset because initially, when you do it by yourself initially, it's really um, pretty hard. Um, yeah. Anyone listening in would probably appreciate that, that kind of leading a business and doing a business from the outset is, um, uh, I don't know, it can be a very lonely kind of time, you know. Absolutely, yeah. So it's, it's good to have that support. Yeah, a lot of, you know, a lot of, I know a lot of single practitioners and they, they say the same thing. So it has been a, a strong support. But I, I will say early on it's quite hard because there's full mouths to feed from day one. So in the first few years it's really difficult. I mean, the reality was the first three years, I think we turned over 150,000 quid a year, which is like we had office space that was 30 grand. So we had about, we were earning about 10,000 pounds a year. When, when we, we left our previous firm on about 25,000 pounds a year. So it was incredibly difficult. The reality was we almost went bankrupt every year for the first three years, but wow. somehow managed to scrape through. But you know what? That, that looking at money, and the business and how you spend money in the business, a lot of what we do now came from those early days when yeah. when we were trying to scrape through. If we'd been successful straight away, um, I think we wouldn't have understood the business side as much. So um, I think that was important lessons for us in those early days. I don't know if That's, you had that, if you were successful yeah. straight away. No, no, it was <laughs> – no, uh, I'm still working on it. Um, but but – uh, <laughs> It was interesting how, from the very outset, kind of starting a business and then just sitting there waiting for the phone to ring, um, and this yeah. nobody knew that you know that we existed at that time. Um, when I pretending to be a business, pretending to be more than one person, um, yeah. it was it was like very quiet, and that kind of I guess in a way, similar time in in '94, it was um, there was a there was the recession. It was a kind of a still a very tough time. Yeah. Uh, and you really, I think starting a business in a tough time, it can only get better potentially, uh, I think. And it does make you yeah. sharper and wiser and more appreciative of the times when it gets better. Yeah. I mean, now I still get drive for remembering what it was like and how hard it was. Equally, when people, you know, sometimes people leave our practice and set up, or I know friends who set up, and I'm terrified for them. But, you know, of course, <laughs> all those years ago, I never thought about that. But, um, no, it's a, I think it's, um, it's not a bad time to set up, but it's, it, it means you really, you've got to survive it. And the survival for us took about, it took us about eight years to get the business. In fact, we saw our old accountant for dinner last week. Oh. And it was and it was 1999. He's a great guy. He used to look after Wham, George Michael and Wham. Oh wow! Which I think is why we liked him. But he he was um, he just Paul Weller. But um, wow, he, cool. He took over us in 1999, and we were just about to turn over a million quid. So mm. we were just you know we must have been about 30 people then. So mm. we were just getting going then. That was 10 years later. Just getting going. And actually, all of us, we were starting. So we all, always paid our staff proper money. Quite often, we'd pay the staff more than us. But then we were all starting to at least get a little bit on the straight and narrow and starting to get repeat business and get clients who were loyal to us. And that's when mm -hmm. it starts to click. 
Yeah. But it takes a long time, doesn't it? It takes a long time. What did um, your accountant say? Did he did he did you sack him at the time or did he resign? He was quite happy taking us over at that point. I think the previous accountant sort of just looked at our accounts and weeped and said, I'll see what I can do for you. <laughs> oh, that's so funny. Well, Lee still saw us go from like 30 people to 500 in the space of, you know, he's sort of semi-retired now in 20 years. So, yeah. I remember back in London in the early days, my my accountant said to me, you're insolvent, you know, like I'm, you're, you're trading insolvent. And I'm like, that just scared the crap out of me. Um, firstly, I didn't know what it meant until <laughs> once I clearly understood that, it really put a rocket up me. Yeah, absolutely. You guys are doing incredible projects, and 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 I guess always have done, and and improving people's lives enormously um, through architectural ambition and design places stand the test of time. Um, what was for you a kind of a pivotal moment in 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 the last thirty plus years? We, you know, we've been doing back extensions early on. We were doing scrappy bits and pieces. We we did a, a, a house, a swimming pool house for Simon's mum and dad, which was lucky. It was a small <laughs> building, and then we then we did a little doctor's surgery that got some notoriety. But we were really still scraping around, and we decided to enter this competition for a bus station in Walsall, Walsall near Birmingham, mm-hmm. and we won it. And there were 120 entries. A lot of famous architects went for it, and we won it as wow. you know, four 30 year olds. And we were, we couldn't believe it. Um, and literally overnight, we we suddenly became a firm who people recognised and you know appreciated. So it really, wow. I suppose that was a real turning point. Um, wasn't a turning point for the business. We were still struggling, still struggling. Mm-hmm. We, you know, changed offices because the rent was too dear in one. Yeah. Still fighting against it. The, the, um, I think the turning point financially. I remember we did something for um, did something in the Far East with some friends, um, Atelier Ten and Atelier One, who I think you might know, Patrick Bellier. Yeah, and they got us a job to help on this airport. And I remember being in, I think it was Shanghai Airport. I had met the clients. They'd agreed to our fee. I remember walking through the through the airport with Patrick, quite emotional, in tears, thinking, "We have oh. finally, we finally got a job that's going to pay us a lot of money, and we can not worry about money for a year." And it was like a really hit me in that weirdly in that airport. And um, yeah, so that was. I think that was wow. the moment when I thought, "God, we can." When we okay, because you can be famous and not have any money. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so we 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 did, we got some notoriety, but then we're like, God, we're getting on the road. This is getting going now. This is you know, the first time you know we we could see because both things and we're not money driven, but we were on you know I think it, you you want security because it's it's very mm. stressful when you've run a business for eight years that's been on on the breadline completely. And I think that's just the hardest thing I always tell people early on. You've just got to have that determination to keep going and keep, you know, we always went out a lot. We'd, we'd, we'd go to openings of events. We'd meet other architects. We'd meet clients. And, we, you know, we, we always did a lot of that. And we enjoyed it. But we, I always say we did it because there was only the four of us in the office. 
and we're so bored with each other going to the pub. We go to the pub, the four of us have nothing to say to each other because we'd spent the last four years sitting in the office next to each other. Oh, that's fantastic. Have, so, so we enjoyed going to all those things. I guess that networking created opportunities as well um, for you guys. Yeah, it's called networking now, isn't it? I never really, I always find it a bit cringy, but I okay. never really did it. For, I didn't really do it for that, but I suppose when I look back, we did. <laughs> But, you know, we were always very sociable people. We we always enjoyed all the different architects and, you know, appreciated our, our peers. And we were of a peer group who grew out of that recession. You know, there are about 20 architects who were, who we knew then who are now the best-known British architects. And mm. some of that started from an exhibition we actually did with Carolyn called 50 um, – sorry, 40 Under 40 – no, ah. 50 and under, sorry, under 50K. And it was basically, we picked 30 architects who designed back extensions for under £50,000. And the whole idea was ah. that people always thought architects, you needed loads of money to use an architect. But we thought if you could advertise things that were under 50,000 quid, people, back extensions at that time cost about that. And then we had all these well-known architects from David Chipperfield, Sabra Cutton, who'd, who'd, wow. who'd done... All these, all these, um, these jobs, which was great, and that's how we got to know them all, and we've known them ever since. So all of our enemies, peers, whatever you might call them, are all are all sort of similar age to me now. Yeah, that's interesting, isn't it? How you kind of all grown up together, uh, yeah. and grown grown substantially from quite humble beginnings, right? Absolutely. I think I think I think my generation, the drive comes out of all of us set up in this really long recession in the early nineties. And if you survived that, you were gonna survive mm. forever because nothing was harder than that. And yeah. I can see it in everyone, that generation are all from that. Um and I think that's why yeah, that's why I think we're close because we all went through it together. Um and also there's a lot of talent there because there was so much determination to get through yeah i was watching your um little tv a tv show that's on your website um which i thought was really interesting um i think it was simon in yourself being interviewed but it, you you were talking about and some people on there have been with the firm uh since 30 were, years yeah, yeah 30 years as well so you managed to kind of hold on to kind of key people in the organization so i guess are vital for you guys going forward. I, it was it's interesting because people sometimes, I mean, during the pandemic uh, changed everything. You know, there was a time you're going, shit, is this the world? Is it ending? Um, are we going to implode? You know, I, I guess everybody was concerned about what was going on and how it might affect. Because obviously, coming from very humble beginnings and from very kind of small, working hard in hard times and building it up, there is this kind of fear in, the, in I mean, in my mind that it'll all be, it'll all implode or uh, stop. I don't know if you ever have that. Maybe you've gone beyond that. Maybe you're, you're such a size that you don't think about that. No, we haven't got beyond that. It's hard times at the moment over here. I mean, we are having to to look at cutting back a little bit because England, the market has gone very, very, you know, it's very tricky over here. You know, we've, mm. I, I, I believe Australia's slightly starting to get it too. But, you know, we've had two years of COVID, the war in Ukraine, mm. we've also got Brexit. Yeah. And it, in the end, it's starting to affect things. So, oh. um, 
uh, at a time in my life where I didn't think it, didn't want to think about that. But no, the hardest thing about your career and my career is you, you just wish it was steady, where you just got the same work in every year and you kept going. But in fact, it oscillates massively. So we go from huge growth to actually mm. thinking, God, we've got too many people. We need to, you know, and it's it's sort of always been the same. So, yeah, we very much do think about that. And I think I think on that, that's why I always advise young businesses, is although when they, when they know how much we turn over, they're shocked because it's sort of often, you know, five years of their turnover for one week of us. But mm. but the thing is, if if we if we aren't on the money, we can lose millions within the space of weeks. And we yeah. can, you know, get into it. So it's sort of proportionally it's much bigger, but the risks are just the same. Um so we've always been on it. We've always looked ahead. We've always really tried to make sure our business is secure. Um but yeah. At the moment, jobs are stopping, and it's it's not the best of times in England. Um, mm. Our American office, by contrast, is doing is doing brilliantly at the moment. Things seem to be really going well over there. That's that's brilliant. You guys open in other places, um, and that can help spread the 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 opportunities as well. So I was going to say we're very hopeful about our Sydney office as well. We've got one of our directors, Andrew O'Donnell, is over there, mm. and he's done huge regeneration projects with land lease in, in England and um, you know we think we think Australia's you know seems to be friendly to architects who aren't just Australian architects so yep. we were very hopeful about about business and obviously be great there's a great tradition of good architecture there as well yeah there really is we've had an incredible growth time as well um, and I think it, it's continuing you won a RIBA Sterling Prize in 2015 for the the project Burnt, Burntwood School um, yeah. What did that feel like, and what was the impact of that to the practice? Oh, massive! I mean, it's not a Sterling Prize; it's the Sterling Prize. I mean, there's only one a year. Okay. There's right. only been there's only been ever twenty four of them, so it's the highest honor or highest award in European architecture. So, um, yeah, pretty good. We've been shortlisted three times before, mm -hmm. so we'd had that sort of Oscar moment where you don't win. It's on live television, so wow. it's you know, and then you're interviewed for news at ten. So um, you know, even when I went to the village, um, my local butcher, I suddenly became a celebrity because they'd see me on news at ten. You know, you make it's amazing how much <laughs> television. But for the, for all four of us, I mean, after all those years, you know, what was that? Um, ten, twenty, twenty six years. It was a real. Um, we felt we felt a huge sense of achievement because it was for a building that was a state school. It wasn't for an expensive art gallery. It was for a state school, and was uh, you know a, a building really giving back, um, and just the recognition was amazing. So you know, overnight we were inundated by messages, and you know our profile shot up, particularly outside the UK. Um, so you know, it was it was our probably one of our biggest achievements and it's one of those things you can never take it away from you it's i mean it's something i'm incredibly proud of and um mm. you know if you could try and do the double it would be great but it's always um yeah I, there must be prizes in your industry where you realize how hard it is to get to the very top one because there's so many different rounds you have to get through and you know so so yeah it was good for us
Yeah, that, that's incredible. And that, and that visibility, incredible for the, the future of business. I guess, um, thinking about your practice, you're probably in a similar situation going, you know, just do the best work possible. I mean, is that your approach? Like, it's, are you always focusing on uh, creating incredible uh, outcomes? I think that it's a few things, Rip. Sorry, we're always interested in something new. You know, people say, what's your favorite building? And I'm always like my next one. You know, yeah. I, I think you have to have that ambition in you. And the day I don't have that is the day maybe I don't need to come in anymore. But um, but I think we, we're also, we've always been interested in something called everyday buildings. And by that, I mean housing or offices. And we've always thought that they could be better. So we often talk about the ordinary that we try and transform it into the extraordinary. And that's yeah. what we're trying to do. And it's those background buildings of cities that often make cities special, um, you know, particularly European cities. And in a way, we were slightly out of sync in the 20 years ago when everything was about creating an icon. Um, you know, we've all seen it. So, you know, buildings that are incredibly sculptural and very different. And we weren't, didn't really suit us that period. We were much quieter with what we did. I mean, I like a building, you know, I often say to clients, I want a building that will be classic and will last the mm -hmm. test of time, not yeah. a building that will be fashionable for a year or two. And we've mm -hmm. had periods where we, <laughs> some of our buildings have been quite fashionable when we were just finding our way and starting to do bigger projects. But on the whole now, we, we want projects in 20 years' time to still feel like they're fresh. If you've got 500 people in, in the practice, how does that work in terms of the, the creative lead? Is it you and Simon still having two separate teams or is there multiple teams throughout yeah. the organization? Yeah, it's me and Simon run two teams. They're all about 130, 100 a bit more um, 180 people in them. We then have, you know, I have a, some directors who've been with me a long time, about um, five directors, sorry, six directors. Mm -hmm. And then we have associate directors and associates. So in a way, um, uh, while that's the hierarchical structure of the way we work and operate and, and project manage projects, the ideas can come from anyone. So they can, can come from the youngest person. You know, we, we, we put drawings on the wall or put them up, you know, normally on the screen these days and, and um, we'll discuss them all equally. And in a way, that's come out of the four of us in the first place. We used to put the ideas on the wall and we'd say the best ideas need to win, you know. And you, you try and take your ego out of it. But it's not always your idea. And we've done that for so long. It doesn't, you know, I can, I, I enjoy spotting the best idea. If it's mine, I feel lucky, but it, it isn't always. But, um, in, the, in the beginning, was it always your idea? <laughs> like, no, or, no. Oh, you no, always the, had that good perspective. In the beginning, it was a bit more of a fight, to be honest. And that's why we don't really design together anymore. We 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 realized <laughs> we realized we weren't architects who could sit at a table and sketch with each other. That wasn't the way we. I mean, we've got this motto: um, if it if it's not drawn, it can't be discussed. Which is, if you've got an idea, draw it and put it on the wall. Yeah. If you just want to talk about an idea, we're sort of a bit interested, but not that interested. What I want to see is a drawing that makes me go, okay, that's why we need to do this. And that mm -hmm. is one of the hardest things in architecture, seeing particularly, you know, you're always, I'm sure you're the same, striving for something 
that is maybe new, original, different, not not copying things. It's so hard. And trying to spot that little moment within a drawing that someone might do, which innocently they might not see what I see in, but that's, to me, those are the special moments. When you spot one of those, it's fantastic. I always thought it was incredible architects can express an idea of a building in such a simple sketch form and with such a complex, I mean, architecture is so complex, but I guess it's the language you must learn over time. Yeah, well, you see, I'm, you know, a bit like when you talked about the business at the beginning, there was no email, there was only the telephone and the fa even the fax was still, you know, had only been around for about five years. <laughs> the computer in terms of was, was, you know, we didn't have a computer for about three years. And then we had one computer, you know, it's, it, so we, I'm not a generation who can draw on the computer. I can't use it in that way. Right. Um, I can only sketch. Mm -hmm. Um, so, and in a way I sometimes wish I could draw more on the computer. I really do, but equally I've got used to not doing that. So what I do is I sketch over computer drawings or I just do sketches and mm -hmm. I encourage, encourage others to do that, but also, you know, when you see the skill of some of the people in our office, the ability of them to manipulate architecture, it's breathtaking. And and in a way, that's I can't. I'll know. I'll never can get get to that point because I won't technically be able to to learn it quick enough. I mean, what I did do over over lockdown, <clears throat> I discovered a program called Morfolio Trace, which means I can import images and sketch on my iPad, and that mm -hmm. revolutionised things for me because then I could send sketches to people digitally without. Um, and, and I didn't need a pen and paper anymore. In fact, I can hardly write anymore now, I find. <laughs> um, so, um, but, but no, so, so the technology is, is great for seeing it develop. You know, we have VR, we have everything now, but I can't use it. But I, I sometimes think it's a bit like, gra you know, I've got a good friend, Morig Myerskop, who's a graphic designer. Oh, yeah. Uh, quite well known over here. Yeah, and Morig still works in a sort of analog way. And she yep. hated the move to digital and graphic design because it became too easy, but also there wasn't the sort of energy you put into doing something that was hand handcrafted in a way. And I, I think I'm not suggesting it's like that with me, but I, I still think there's the ability to, to sketch an idea sometimes is what can drive a project. Yeah, that's really interesting. I think that, um, I mean, Morag actually... Uh, used to be in Great Sutton Street in Clerkenwell, where my studio was too. So we used to see each other a lot um, at the oh, cafe right. and yeah. stuff. Yeah, yeah. A, a long time we ago. We designed a studio there. Oh, we designed hers. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, when we, yeah, when she first and moved she, there. She lived yeah. in it too, I think. Um, yeah. The what's interesting is that she's now become an artist, right? And and funny enough, that the, my next my next kind of conversation point was just around. Um, we're working on 2FA uh, to Finsbury Avenue. Um, yeah. You've done one Finsbury Avenue. Um, yeah. And Morag did the artwork within the, the, the kind of the public space, I think. Um, yeah, she did. How, yeah. How do you talk, talk to me about how you incur, incorporate art in the buildings and spaces that you design? Yeah, well, we've, sorry, with Morag, we've worked with Morag for 30 years since we set up really early on, got to know her. Mm -hmm. Um, and obviously at the beginning she was a graphic designer and she sort of, with some of the things we were doing, moved into wayfinding. 
mm-hmm. and, and a bit of branding. Um, although she never liked any of that bit. She sort of had a... Uh, but we just realised that the accents that she could create really made a difference to our buildings. So I think probably the best early one was Westminster Academy, which was a school where we realised, you know, we had painted walls, but if we had some artwork that was hand-painted, it wasn't going to cost too much money compared to the cost of the building. So we brought Morag in to work with the kids and created these art pieces, some of which were, you know, there was a the cafe where Morag asked them, what's your favourite food? And because the kids are from all over the world, the, food, the, the list of food on the wall is from all over the world, so it's international. We had a welcome in, you know, 50 languages when you came in, maps of the world. And, and that really, you know, that, that was really collaborative in the way we, we work with it in. And we did the same with Burtonwood, that school. I think British land was different. Um, number one, Finsbury Avenue. Mm-hmm. We, we'd been designing a cafe in the middle. And <laughs> so my team always get irritated when I say it, but it kept looking like an oyster bar in an airport. You know, just it just <laughs> looked it looked too corporate and we were trying to create something that, that caught the eye. And in the end I said to British Land, why don't we get Morag? I mean it'll be something that will you know, I'm not sure if you'll you'll like it, but she'll definitely do something that has impact. And then she brought this model of this very colourful building with um, a cafe with the trees on top and, and it and it really worked and then I managed mm. to persuade her to do some wayfinding again because she doesn't normally do that now so she yeah. then did sort of quite odd wayfinding so I think it hasn't always worked I mean I I prefer working with someone where it's it can be totally collaborative but you know what I never do I never try and control an artist because if you start trying, I have to tell some of my younger architects, no, don't say, I don't like that green, because they're an art. You've <laughs> got to give them their head. You've got to give yeah. them. And I'm always with Morag, if she comes up with something and I like it, which I normally do, I'll go just go with it. We've just done mm. another piece with a, an artist called Yinka Aloria, who's really mm. um, become famous now, and it's this um, building, central house in the city. It's an office building where we put an old. We put a new building on top of an old building. So it's like mm-hmm. a revert, you know, it's the same size. And, and in, in, in between is a seam. And in what? that seam an is old, this... Uh, an old building on top of a new building? No, the other way around. Old, new building oh. on top of an old... So it's like a yeah, seven-storey okay. seven white concrete 60s building where we put mm-hmm. a seven-storey black okay. metal building on top. And in between yeah. is this seam. And Yinka's done this piece based on the artwork and fabrics around Brick Lane. Uh, it's a fantastic piece. And again, we just said, you know, I think I think what you're doing is great. This is the area you can put it in. Let Just, just keep us informed what you're doing. But it's always collaborative. But um, I like things quite integrated into our buildings. I don't like the old bit where you have, you know, a moment where you have a piece of art sitting on a pedestal. I'd much prefer things built into the wall so they look totally integrated. That's my, my favourite use of it. Yeah. Wow, awesome. And, that, and that's the same across the whole practice? Well, you know, I think some of it, we work with um, graphic designers who probably like Morag are also semi-artists too. So 
we, I often find that side of how you label a building, the, um, all of those elements can can add a lot to a building too. I mean, when, whenever we did a new school, we'd always try and get them to rebrand, which was quite interesting because they always quite enjoyed it. It's a way of making people, um, people who, who maybe architecture is a bit difficult to understand or they're not as confident with, with the mm-hmm. idea of branding and it's something that a lot of people can enjoy and feel part yep. of to join people yep. together. Yeah, we do, we do a lot of that um, across the company and, and the whole uh, place branding, et cetera, it really does help an organization or, or a community become focused, um, make sense of everything yeah. for them. Yeah, um, absolutely. Going through your list of achievements is, is mind-blowing. And, and one, of the, one of the really incredible ones that stands out for me is that you've been appointed as the first ever city region design champion of your hometown, Liverpool. Yeah. Um, amazing achievement um, uh, by your mayor, Steve Rotherham. Um, yeah. Big responsibility. I mean, how does that how does that affect you? What do you do? Are you, are you is it like a one day a week you do it, or once a month? It's a bit more loose than that. I mean, it's, <laughs> is it? it's it, okay. The, the, I, I sometimes say the title sounds more more important than, than what, what I actually do. But what what I've what I've realised because I've been doing it for about five years, and obviously we had two years oh, okay. of COVID, so it's very yeah. difficult in those years. Um. I try and promote good architecture in the city, good design, but but often I'm promoting the architects in the city. Um, there's an awful lot of talented young firms there, mm-hmm. um, and they often don't get noticed. And so what I try and do is organise competitions, exhibitions. I helped um, set up the London Liverpool Architecture Festival, which is a biannual festival. So cool. trying to promote architecture to school kids, but also promote architects to clients to hopefully give some of these younger architects, smaller firms, a break. And that's that's sort mm. of what I realised. I don't really get involved with planning policy, and um, but I I think um, I think you probably do now. I'm part of the, a government advisory board as well called Office for Place, which mm-hmm. is the government's. Um, board which looks at trying to help speed up planning, try and get more housing built in this country. So I've been part yeah. of that for about four years, which is has been very interesting. Wow, that's cool. And and was Peter Savile the creative director of Liverpool when you were doing that too? Or was that earlier on? Um, I don't know. Dad, not that I know of. I thought he he's more he Manchester, isn't he? Maybe it was uh, the art was... bit. No, maybe it was the art biennale. It could have been the art one. Oh, okay. Um, yeah. And I hear you're a massive Queen fan. I don't know how we yeah. hear that, but uh, that might be from Caroline. Yeah, um, I've, I've seen them quite a lot, yeah. <laughs> and how has, music influ- how has music influenced your life? I suppose early on, um, when I was in Liverpool, you know, Liverpool obviously was quite famous for music, grew mm. up, and I grew up in the 60s when the Beatles were still around. Yeah, um, I always wanted to be a rock star, but um, and I had a I could play the piano and I had a keyboard. Was in a band for a bit when I was seventeen. We used to play and work in men's clubs and get fifty quid for a night, which was good fun. Um, That's cool. And then uh, and then uh, I went to university and didn't really pursue that at all. But um, I suppose music's have always been important to me, something to relax to. I'm quite passionate about it. I I love live music. I love going to see live music. I do like other people as well as Queen. 
But um, as Carolyn probably told you, I think I saw Queen 20 times. Yeah, 20 times with Freddie wow. Mercury. Uh, so I did see wow. them a lot. And I've seen them about 20 times since as well because they've in all their different guises. So, wow. um, yeah, so... Okay. But, I, I, you know, I suppose when I was a student or when I was working, it would be putting music on the background. But I just, I also felt fascinated by musicians. And, you know, I read, used to read all these music magazines. And now I listen to all the podcasts because music magazines are sort of fading away, but the podcasts are coming out. So I really enjoy, I, I, it's, it's, a, it's an industry I'm really fascinated by. Yeah, amazing. I mean, I guess that that, that must have been incredible growing up. I'm not. Well, I guess I grew up in the sixties too, so I'm not that far behind you. My 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 dad used to always play Beatles albums back in Canada. Um but um yeah, growing up with that kind of music, that incredible music around you, it would it would no doubt have an incredible influence on you. Did it feel like was it a big move for you to to leave Liverpool? Um I, I couldn't wait to be honest. I mean my parents <laughs> were <laughs> we used to have arguments all the time. My parents were about, you know, got divorced a few years later. And I was the oldest brother. I've got two younger brothers. But I couldn't right. wait. didn't even think about it. I mean, it was – I remember my mum dropping me off at university in Sheffield, um, her crying her eyes out, and I was just like, right, let's get going. <laughs> it's, it's, let's go out. Let's go and meet some people. So I oh, never wow. even thought about it. And then moving wow. to London just seemed natural because – Simon was from London, and we decided to get a flat in a place called Maida Vale, which was pretty lucky now when you consider where people have to live. Yeah. And, we used to um, live in Maida Vale. That's cool. Yeah, we were on Elgin Avenues in the yeah, mansion we were How weird. Wow. Yeah, bit, of, bit of mansions. But, um, and we all came down, four of us, all got year-out jobs, and um, just moved to London as if, like, literally one day we're in Sheffield, the next day we're in London. I think it's a lot harder now for kids because, um, you know, it's a lot more expensive, London, and um, they'd have to live much further out. But it was great coming down here. So I never – and then London felt – within a few years, London felt a really natural home for me. And obviously then going to UCL or Bartlett, it was it was really influential on in our careers. Um, and, and, you know, that was a you know huge moment for us going to – you know, the best university in, in London. Um, and then the Bartlett, you know, I carried on teaching there for 18 years at the Bartlett. So um, wow. when I left, so it was, you know, it's something we're very attached to. Amazing. I mean, I want to talk a bit about, um, I guess, a sensitive project, the Alder uh, Centre, um, which is, you know, like, you know, you, you guys' projects across all that you do influence uh, lives, you know, by tens of thousands of people every single day. And obviously one project that stands out significantly um, with the impact it has on lives of parents experiencing the most challenging time of their life is um, bereavement and um, a center that helps kind of uh, people deal with that bereavement and counseling for families who have lost a child. Yeah. Um, can you talk about that project? Because that's incredibly – I just can't imagine how you would um, begin a project like that. Yeah, it's quite it – was, it was quite a special project. I mean, we're, it's one of the ones that we're probably most well-known for for the last few years, but it's the smallest project we've done for about 20 years. It was a competition, and believe it or not, 
the hospital, it was the end of the road that I lived in when I was young, and my mum was there as well, still there, wow. still lived in the road. So it was literally 200 yards from where I grew up, and I thought, what, what are the chances? Wow. So I rarely went for it in the competition. And, of course, in the bid for the competition, I sort of had a whole picture of me in school uniform and said, you know, I went to the local school, I know the area, it's going to be an incredibly important project for me. We won it. Um, but when we had the briefing, we there were two things that I remember. Um, we went to this little garden, um, where, which was outside the mortuary, and it was part of the big hospital. It's a kids' hospital, all children's hospital. And there were loads of cigarette butts on the floor. Uh, I said to the um, I said to the guy who showed us around. I said, "Do you do you let people smoke here?" And he goes, "You you try and tell someone to stop smoking when they've just lost a child." And he wow. was sort of like, "Woo, woo!" And then he said, and I still get emotional today. So they they used to, in that garden they bring babies out who are dead to show them the world because they'd never seen the world. And you know there, there were stories like that where everyone who worked in the centre had lost a child, so everyone had gone through that, and some terrible stories. So, yeah, how do you start with a project like that? And I think the starting point actually came from Susie in our office, was the book The Secret Garden, um, which I don't know if you know, but it was a film a few years ago, but it's this garden that's gone derelict because mm -hmm. the owner, the, 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 the father, has lost his, his wife, and gave up on life, and somehow the, the 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 nephew makes the garden return back to its glory days, and that brings his father around. So it's a whole metaphor for healing. So we thought, secret garden. Let's try and create this wall garden, so that when you go in, it's like a secret garden in the middle of this big hospital complex. So that was the starting point, and then we wanted everything to feel the right scale. So we, we took the pitched roofs of houses that were nearby and put lots of them on top of each other so the whole building becomes a series of pyramid roofs which give mm. it, so every room is a pyramid roof. So it has a sense of, I suppose, the home about it. Um, mm. And then it was using natural materials and basically the whole building, all of the rooms look out onto the garden. So there's a big living room kitchen in the middle that, that people can just make a coffee cup of tea and then it goes private at one end has consulting rooms you know even things like the toilet the toilet's big and it has a chair in because often people go there to cry um you know it's a very people never ever recover from losing a child so people go there for years people be get there's some people who been going there for 15 years People lose wow. children at 15, they lose children at two, and it doesn't seem to be any of them or any better. It's just it's just something that's always with them. So, yeah, when, when, so when it was finished, unfortunately, again, it was COVID, but they started to use it, and the reactions were so good from people, you know, that people, they talk about people coming in, not wanting to leave, staying there for about four hours because they're just happy, they felt, it was peaceful and it was it's also a good place to meet other people to share your grief so yeah so that's how it came about it, i have to say you know it's one of my special projects i've ever done and um in a way it was it was originally it was an excuse to come and see my mum 
but even her, you know, even she died halfway through the building of the building, so she never saw it finished. So, oh. in a way, I have some grief about that building as well. Yeah, well, that oh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry for your loss. I mean, it. I was just wondering if, I mean, such an emotional thing. Um, but to kind of talk about human experience, like you know, you really are designing for that type of experience that people don't often want to um, discuss, right? And and I guess growing up in that area, you must have felt so connected to that community, even though you left, you couldn't wait to leave originally. Did you come yeah, back yeah. With, diff with a different kind of perspective on life? Not really. I still didn't want to go back, but I, um, I found <laughs> okay. it. But I obviously, it's, it's, it's really weird, isn't it, going back to the roads that you grew up on. And literally 40 years later, and everything's sort of not changed, but changed a bit. If anything, mm. it's got a bit, it's got a bit scruffy around there. I mean, um, but, you know, the, the hospital, you know, because I used to go to, you know, like we all did when we were young, you'd go to hospital for checkups and things. It's all knocked down now in this brand new high tech hospital built instead. And then, you know, where I used to go to the corner to buy sweets and stuff is now where our older centre is. So it's all quite, it's quite odd. Um, so it feels it feels very different going back, um, but you know I, I I'm very fond I'm very proud of coming from Newville, you know mm -hmm. I'm very proud of um, being able to go to state school and achieve something. You know I think it's much harder to do that these days. So, yeah. um, in a way, you know my mum in particular was a very strong character, and I think must have driven my ambition somehow. I think that's about you know something of her has made me want to be anything you know i never i always thought i could be anything i wanted to be nothing that came from my mum. i never thought you know yeah. never thought it was poor but i don't know what it's like for you but everyone was poor when i was young you know it wasn't the people it, it just wasn't you know i was in a you know suburb of liverpool everyone was the same so but you know when i look back i realized we were but it, i never felt it that was a real achievement yeah, I, I, I can I can relate to that. I mean, my I I was born in Brighton in Sussex, um, on the south coast, and I remember my granddad saying to me one one summer, you know, our us frosts know our place, and it really I didn't understand it for a long time, um, mm. but I was in a way it kind of like I, I've been at odds with it ever since because like you kind of feel like there's the at that time there wasn't kind of the ambitions ambitions to grow. Or expect more from life, yeah. And yeah. Um, and it's only through just working hard and you know nose down, working on projects, doing the best thing that life can take you to a different place. Yeah, no, it's terrible, isn't it? The way things were so different. I mean, one of the things that was interesting in my life was my dad was definitely working class, mm -hmm. um, although there was like denial about it. But um, but he 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 played tennis. And when he went to the army, he did national service in Germany after the war. Um, he would play, you know, he'd be the lowest of the low in the army because he was a good tennis player. He'd play with the guy who ran the whole the whole army there. So he'd get a lift oh. in his Rolls Royce, go and play tennis in the grass. And I think Dad then made us all join tennis club. And tennis at that time was a, <laughs> was quite, you know, it was quite snooty. And yeah, Dad would yeah, be yeah. playing tennis against lawyers and doctors, and I think there was something in 
that with dad and uh, maybe I saw from the side that I never, you know, we could mix well with anyone. It didn't really matter. And But it was interesting how that sport liberated him through that. Yeah, because I think he, you know, he that was something that he could, where everyone was equal. And um, I still love, I play tennis now, actually, I still love it. But um, it was it was a good thing to be brought up with. That's fantastic. Um, you love talking about kind of young, young talent. Um, you love helping young architects get started through the outreach program with schools and charities. Um, can you talk a bit about that and what it looks like and how AHMM is involved? We have a thing called partnerships, which um, HMM partnerships, which look at all outreach things. So we do things with local schools. You know, um, we've got a summer school at the moment going on where kids like in sixth form might come here and we set them projects for a few days um, to see if they're interested in doing architecture at university. We help them with, you know, their portfolios. There are other things we, you know, there's... Um, a charity for refugees nearby where we do art classes. Um, we also do things like help them write a CV, you know, for going to jobs. Um, there are so many, you know, we do a lot with universities, architecture universities, so we sponsor shows, we do lectures there. And I think it's always something we, we felt, you know, we've been very lucky in the end and we want to give back um, mm -hmm. and we want to be a practice that, you know, I think we're particularly interested in trying to bring young architects into a career who are either from um, a sort of more diverse background or from a very poor background. Um, so helping people who might not think architecture is the right career for them. And we do an awful lot there. We have a, there's a scheme called apprenticeships, which... Um, people can do can can earn and learn at the same time, so that they they get their, they, you know they they get qualified through doing quite a few years in practice and just doing part time, and that's that's something we have quite a lot of them each year. So it's it's sort of a real commitment. I'd say also I've always you know we have either people who leave us and set up or young firms, and we're always. You know, I'll always see a young firm and give them some advice, maybe some tips, maybe sometimes mm -hmm. the potential of, of work. Um, you know, I think mm -hmm. I remember what it was like when we began and the people who helped us along our way always meant a lot to us. Um, so, yeah. you know, I still think quite small things in my world can make, make quite a big difference when you're setting up. Yeah, I love that. And giving people a chance they might not other ha otherwise have. Yeah. Okay. Um, what are your plans for the next 30 years for the firm? Okay. Do you guys think that far ahead? I suppose I'm thinking about the next 10 years. Um, okay. You know, I'd, I'd, I'd love... We've just finished a building tower, Hamlet's Town Hall, which is great. You know, it's really come out well. It's a beautiful old building, old hospital, the old Royal London Hospital, you know, where the elephant man used to live. You know, it was the room in oh, the wow. film. It was the room used to live in the top of it. And now it's wow. a town hall. So that one's come out, and it's so, and it's taken six years to do. You know, it's a long time. I've got another project in, in, in the city called Blossom Street. It's taken 12 years since we started the job. You know, I was a young man when we started. So I suppose <laughs> what, 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 what I'm interested in is doing 
you know, I like doing public buildings, buildings that have a public purpose that um, I think sustainability over here now is absolutely the number one thing. Trying to knock buildings down is really, really difficult in London and think it will be in the whole of the UK soon. So to me, the, being inventive with old buildings is, is something we really enjoy. And I think, so I'd like to sort of have opportunities to do with that. I'd like to see the practice carry on flourishing. You know, to me, the awards are always quite nice for us and for the teams who work on it. But they're always a recognition your work is still valid, but it's still at a high level. So I always use them as a bar. If you're not winning many awards, it means, you know, something's not going right. So yeah. I, I, you know, I hope we continue to to sort of do work that's of interest. Um, yeah, and I, I, I suppose we always used to joke that what, what do we want to do? A small airport was always what we want. You know, we, I think it's probably the only typology we haven't done an airport. Quite like to do a hospital because hospitals mm -hmm. are quite... Um, not that well designed over here you know they're too mm -hmm. institutional so i'd love to have a go at something like that um yeah yeah but yeah i'm always interested in what's around the corner that's part of part of part of what's been amazing about my job is suddenly you know a few years ago we were designing the house of commons the chamber for the house of commons how the hell did that happen? you know and it might happen it? again and then the people you meet, these some of these people behind, you know, put the money into the building are fascinating. Some are absolutely mm. horrible, but you know, so many of <laughs> so many of them are fascinating because they've done what you've done. You know, they've set up a business and made it successful. So, it's the people too I really enjoy. Talking about um, people, uh, in two thousand and seventeen, you implemented an employee ownership trust. How was that received, and how does that how does that work? Um, and how does that affect the culture of the business? Um, yeah, basically, it's handing over the ownership of the business to the firm. So everyone becomes um, a shareholder in it um, and uh, effectively it's, it's, it's a sort of more, more, you know, obviously there are bigger shareholders and smaller shareholders, but everyone's got some share. Yep. Um, but it's a way of, I remember what we found is sorry it can it, you can help you in as a business get the opinion of where people are so um if they you know enjoy working on the third floor or they find it too noisy or you know so it's quite petty things come out but that's useful because you wouldn't get them but also more profound things you know at the moment i think the latest thing is where where one might work which countries in the world might mm -hmm. not be acceptable for us to work in and mm -hmm. um i suppose there's some more moral um issues um you know that we now have a paternity leave is equal to maternity leave here so i don't yeah, know what it's like yeah. in australia but we get 13 weeks full pay 13 then there's any architect who pay for that long full pay for male or female and that they can have 13 weeks off so things like that, we I think we're very modern on, and, and a lot of that came out of consultation. You know, mm -hmm. we have a a diversity uh, and gender issues in architecture. So trying to get our gender balance right. So trying to um, look at the balance of the firm, male to female. Um, also bringing more diverse people in. 
is is mm-hmm. sort of really important to us. And something, sorry, I think it's something that's always been important to us, but we we look at it more consciously now. We're a big firm because we want to we want to be as exemplary as we can be in those areas. So yeah, so mm-hmm. all of that the EOT are all involved with. So from from quite you know what night should we do our you know our, our um, Friday night? Is it Friday night the best night for presentations for you know with beers or is Wednesday yeah. night better? To actually more profound issues to do with gender. <laughs> so I, I think it's great and everyone feels the same. Of course, you know, actually if the practice does really well, they're all shareholders, so they get a bonus. When it doesn't, mm-hmm. for the last three years, for example, where there's no bonus because there's no profit, I think it, it's it's less exciting to people. But, you know, I'm sure we'll be back to, to moving again forward. But I think it's a really modern way of running a business. H- have you designed your life? Ooh, doesn't feel like it sometimes. It feels like, um, you know, in a way, things have just evolved. I think, you know, I think there was one moment five years ago um, where when we started to do the AOT and we had some money came through because of that, we decided to buy a place in Suffolk, um, Mm-hmm. with a view that I could start to maybe start going there for long weekends and have, have you know, work a little bit less or work from there. Yep. And yep. Um, so I suppose that's the nearest I've come to designing. I've never actually quite got there for long weekends enough. But now my, oh, kids, really? now my kids are literally both will almost leave left home or can look after themselves. There's a lot more freedom for me and my wife to go there. Yeah. So I suppose that's been one thing. I'd say other things like I made myself start playing tennis again about 20 years ago, and I find that great. You know, there's my entire life and social life is all architects, apart from when I go to mm. the tennis club where I don't talk about it at all. And and <laughs> learning the and playing the piano again. I, for my 60th, I bought myself a piano. I'd never had one. So nice. I had an electric piano, and I I've sort of been learning, trying to get better at that. So those are things that are outside architecture so i suppose they are in a way i did design them in that way um but yeah hard question no it is a hard I, I suppose question. the hardest one is which of course now i'm my age everyone wants to know is okay what's your plan for retiring and wh- how do you see that and that's the one i can't work out whatsoever because i find my job too exhilarating i'd want to carry yeah. on carry on as long as i can yeah, but at the same time, a mortal, and you, you know, you running a big business is quite stressful. So, I sort of, yeah, I suppose I that that's the thing I've I've got to think about in the future. But I can't see well, myself retiring. Got, yeah, I mean, keep keep doing what you love. I mean, that's the main thing, isn't it? Yeah, like you love yeah. what you do. Yes, it can be stressful at times, but more so than not, it's the incredible, incredible creative outlet. Yeah. Uh, an incredible contribution you're making to society, the way that people live and work and experience the world, and also the team and the young people coming through, you know, huge. Uh, you're done, you do incredible things with mentoring people and teaching, et cetera, uh, contributing, putting back to um, giving back, as you said earlier. Yeah, I mean, while I get, as I said before, I get a real kick if, if my idea is the best idea. 
um, <laughs> when we're on the wall. I also really enjoy seeing someone just fly with an idea where, you know, whether it be on my doodle or their doodle, and suddenly they're off. And mm. I get a real kick out of seeing that. Someone just taking an idea somewhere up to that next level. You know, I think yes, all of us, I don't know how you feel. I can get it up to, I can get it up to a level. Then I'll need to think about it for a bit. And then it'll take another jump to get it up to the next level. I very, you know, there's only a few moments where you get it all in one, like that older center came all in one go. It was like secret mm-hmm. garden, the pitched roofs, wall garden, bam, here it is. And it literally didn't change. It's so rare that happens. But I love seeing someone run with an idea. It's 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 still what makes you want to get up in the morning when you see that. And um, I'm very lucky to be surrounded by so many talented architects. You know, it's key. Always employing people who are more talented than you, isn't it? It's a really key thing. Yeah, and I guess that kind of deep-rooted ambition to do something brilliant. Yeah, I'm never really bothered about just earning, having jobs to pay money. You know, mm. always want each job. You know, what you've realized, some jobs are more interesting to other people than others. But it doesn't mean to say they're not important. What I don't want is just do a job where I don't really care about. You know, we're just bringing in yeah. some money and I don't really, I've never been bothered about that. Yeah. And that and that collaboration, you guys talk about um, collaboration is such an important part of your practice. Yeah. Um, and you kind of said you don't care where an idea, you like it if it's your idea, but you don't care where the idea comes from necessarily. No, I mean, we, we have a lot of systems for how, we, you know, we're very analytical, we're quite rigorous, we work through options, so we, we're quite scientific the way we come up with things. But then, you know, there is that bit of working up a pro. you know, if you're doing an office, you need to work out how many toilets, how many lifts, and what the net mm. to gross is. But then there is this other bit, which is the sort of X factor, which is what what's going to make that special, and and the search for that is always, um, always something that's tricky. I always remember we we did you know we did New Scotland Yard in London yeah for the police, and it was about a week before we had to hand it in, and I thought we'd done a really good job, and I thought but there needs to be some sense of humour here, I, you know. That, <laughs> so I so I came up with an idea about the toilets, where. You know the police. You know police cars have a livery on, which is all different patterns. You know, so they have ye- yeah. you know, yellow and red stripes. What we did was every toilet was the, the the pattern was a police car livery from a different period. So it started off with the all black ones with a stripe, and then yeah, yeah. and then and it, had the cars. The, it had the yellow and blue checkerboard patterns. So every and we we presented it, and it was it was the the deputy mayor of London and the head of the police, and went. I presented it to them. I said something like, you know, we know your you, your job's really serious, but we know you also enjoy cars, and so do we, and here's, here's and they all laughed. And I realised that was a moment, because it was so formal and so straight, that we had a, we it was something that was going to be memorable. And, of course, we did it in the end, and it is memorable. It's hysterical you know, when you see it. Wow. You never would have thought of that, that you'd add humour um to the Scotland New Scotland Yard, no. um, that's a really cool to kind of just keep kind of challenging, I guess, isn't it? Challenging people's perceptions, ideas, or what they expect. Yeah, yeah. Uh, create some magic. Yeah, Paul, it's been really cool to have you on Design Your Life today. Thank you so much. Thanks, Vince. It's been um, really nice to talk to you, and hopefully, I'll see you soon over here. Yeah, definitely be over there very soon. Thanks, buddy.
Thanks. Thanks for listening to today's episode of Design Your Life with the legendary architect Paul Monaghan, co-founder of Alfred Hall Monaghan Morris, also known as AHMM. Tune in to the next episode where I catch up with Kim Elferston, founder of Australia's leading cultural agency, Articulate. Thanks for listening to this episode of Design Your Life. If you'd like to find out more about how you can design your life, head to the website at designyourlife.com.au. If you found this episode inspiring, please don't forget to review and subscribe. If you have any ideas or like to get in touch, we would love to hear from you. Send us an email at hello at frostcollective.com.au.